Well, in this season of global disruption, we, where we are living amidst the effects of the pandemic of COVID-19 and the health, relational, economic, emotional disruption that that's bringing, but also reminded of the pandemic of racism and the largest civil rights protests in the history of the world. In the midst of these pandemics, this global disruption, we also are experiencing a massive personal and global and communal division. We see division everywhere. We see it as people are debating whether or not to wear masks. And all of a sudden that has morphed into some kind of political and ideological position. We see it in how people are interacting with the protest in cities. Some saying this is riots and violence and others saying this is peaceful. And as people are demanding for racial justice, we see division everywhere. But it's not just on our social media feeds, in our neighborhoods, around our, our family tables. We see the division in the church. As people who are shaped from potentially one political ideology or, or, or one cultural background, it's leading to this sense of distance among their brothers and sisters in Christ. And how do we deal with this? What do we do? How do we move forward, not just in a world of global disruption, but a, a world of global division? What does this look like for us? How do, we, how do we have any sense of sense about us to, to move forward? Do you feel the weight of the division in your life? Has it affected some of your relationships? I know it has for, for me. You know, Paul is writing into the division in this church in Philippi. And I want to read our passage this morning. It's Philippians 2, just verses 1 to 2. And Paul, he's, he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, saying, in light of everything I've, I've been writing, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, what Paul's saying is, listen, if you have any inclination toward Jesus and this triune God and this love and mercy I'm talking about, or me, look at verse 2, complete my joy. Complete. Again, Paul's saying, look, if there's anything else you hear, you need to hear this. And here it is. Complete my joy. Be of the same mind. Having the same love. Being united in spirit. And having one purpose. Paul says you need unity. You need unity. In this world of division. And, and division was, was happening in this church. Paul's going to address the divisiveness and division in the church. Paul's saying, listen, in this world of division and in this churches of division, be of the same mind. A shared heart, what he says, love and uniting a spirit. This isn't the Holy Spirit. This is a harm, harmony, unity of mind, unity of heart, unity of action. Paul has this holistic concept of unity. Right? It's very holistic. It's not simplistic. Some calls for unity amidst our division today are very uh, simplistic. 
Some want, when they say unity, they just want unity of mind. If we just all have the same beliefs, and you see this in some churches and some denominations where there's this long list of convictions that one must hold. Sometimes theological books are larger than the Bible itself. You need to have all this, these views, and unity is merely if we just have the same beliefs, the same doctrinal statement. The problem, of course, is it misses love. It misses application. Others just have more. It's unity of heart, unity of love. If we can just be together. If we just come together for a night of worship or a night of service, just a, just a, a, a kumbaya sense of unity. Just, hey, we're together. If we say it, that's enough. And the problem of this is it actually can perpetuate harm. We see this in calls in some church traditions around race. This idea of we just, we're all one family, and if we just say it enough, that's all we need to do. But this minimizes the racial injustices in our world. And this call for this kind of kumbaya unity perpetuates division. It it leads to people who experience a racialized world and racial injustice. It, it minimizes the pain of their experience and the realities of those injustices in our world. This calling for unity that wants no part of actually addressing injustice is not gospel unity. But also this idea of unity that's merely about the work but not about the heart. This, if we just work together, accomplish tasks, but there's no love, no uh, unity of spirit, it leads to burnout. Paul has a holistic view of unity, and so we're going to take the next several weeks to look at it. Next week, looking at unity of heart. The week after, looking at unity of purpose and work. Today, unity of mind. What does Paul mean? What's the point that he's getting at when he says, be of the same mind? I want two questions today. What does it mean and how can it happen? Unity of mind, unity of thought. What does it mean and how is it possible? Uh, first, when we talk about unity of mind, this, the verb here is phreneo, and it's a very common verb used throughout the passage, and it's translated in a few ways. Uh, our passage says, be of the same mind. The NIV says, be like-minded. The New Living Translation translates it, thinking the same thoughts. Peterson in the Message Bible says, be agreeable. What's Paul getting at? Think the same thoughts. Okay. Oh, be of the same mind. What does Paul have in mind when, when he says that? Well, a few things he doesn't mean that I think will help us uh, zero in here. Paul does not mean, when he says, be of the same mind, he does not mean, don't be disagreeable. There is some truth in that. There's a part of it, but Paul's primary concern is not people just disagreeing with one another. It's true that just being stubborn and disagreeable can be unhelpful. Sometimes I struggle with this. I have this devil advocate concept where if someone takes one position, I almost immediately want to take the other. I, I find great joy in just sometimes debating. And that can be cute and all, but it gets real old. When you have someone, a friend, who just is always taking the position that's different than yours, it's like, come on, can't this gets exhausting. 
But that's not Paul's primary point. He's not saying, look, let's just all be in agreement. Also, his point is not, you need to be like-minded in everything. His point here is, look, all right, we need to settle all the disagreements. So, okay, let's get them all out there. The best flavor of ice cream. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek. We're settling this right here. I mean, pews or chairs. Musical preferences. Paul is not saying being of the same mind means we share the same personal preferences about everything. Unfortunately, in some church circles, it's how they approach things. They want to, they have the Jesus-sanctioned view of it all. It's not what Paul's getting at. And lastly, Paul doesn't have in mind that we have shared agreement in every point of theology. It's, doctrine's important, as we'll see, but that's not what he's getting at. When he says, be of the same mind, what he's getting at is we need to be united in a gospel lens and framework that allows us to interpret everything. We need to have a shared lens shaped by the gospel in Jesus Christ that shapes how we view and interpret all of life. This is more about how we see the world, how we think, than what we do. And that, we've said this at, at Scarlet City all the time, when our view of the Bible is it's giving us the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the Bible is more concerned with how you think than just what you do. Jesus is giving, and Paul's giving a framework, a lens through which we look at all of life. You know, all of us look at life through the lens that's shaped by our cultural and personal experiences. None of us get around this. Right? Your view on some of those uh, preferential items, Star Wars or Star Trek, probably if you land in one of those camps, you, you, we could ask you some questions. Did you grow up watching one over the other? Did your parents watch one? Probably if your parent, if your dad was a Trekkie and you grew up watching that, probably that's where you'll go. Do you have a personal inclination to Star Trek being more about kind of the advancement of society and humanism and the sciences or Star Wars, which is like the, um, uh, the uh, combativeness of good versus evil. Are you predisposed to one storyline of life? Right, that's shaped by your personal experiences and family background and, and culture. But it's not just these preferences. You know, like I, I like Skyline Chili not just because I have a refined sense of taste, but because I grew up in the region of Cincinnati and it feels like home. It's not just that kind of idea, but also views of, of important concepts in the world. Take, for example, the role of, of government. If you've had the opportunity to get to know someone who, who comes from, who moved to the States from a nation that was under Soviet Union rule, they're going to most likely be very capitalistic, very pro-American, they're, they're, because they've experienced, and they know people who have experienced the brutality of communism firsthand. And so that shapes how they look at the role of government and, and free enterprise. If you are friends with someone who's lost their job because of globalization and their, their um, industry, their, their manufacturing job was outsourced to another country, that's going to shape their view of capitalism and the free markets. Point being, 
So much of life, we want to baptize with right or wrong, but it's all shaped through the lens of our cultural background and personal experiences. So, Paul, what's he doing here? Where am I going with this? Paul, what Paul's getting at is he's wanting them to have a lens that allows them to interpret life through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ. All of these people, they come from cultural and personal backgrounds that shapes how they look at government, that shapes how they look at money, that shapes how they look at relationships and friendships and marriage and suffering. And Paul's giving them a new lens, a new foundation on which you can build a life. And so that is, that is at the heart. When, when Paul says, be of the same mind, this is what he has in mind, that we have the same gospel framework that allows us to view and make sense of everything. This now leads us to ask the question, okay, how, how does one do this? How do we have a similar gospel lens for life? Well, first, we need to know what the gospel is. What is the gospel? The, the term euangelion, what, what does that even mean? You know, Paul uses it all throughout this, this letter. He says, because of your participation in the gospel, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of confirmation of the gospel, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Over and over. He, again, he gets back to the gospel. But right there in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, the gospel of Christ. This is so profound. Paul, the gospel is synonymous with Jesus. I mean, listen to some of this. In chapter 1, verse 15, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. For Paul, preaching Christ and gospel ministry are synonymous. They're linked. They're the same. For In chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. All of life, his purpose, his ministry is Christ, gospel. Where am I getting at here? For Paul, the good news, the gospel, is the work of Jesus Christ. And it would have made sense for his original hearers. You know, the term euangelion, which we translate gospel, literally means good news. But it's not, it's not just um, good news. It's not just random. It was an intensely political term. It was used to describe good news of an event that happened in history that implications on the hearer. It was used to describe victory in war that meant freedom for people. It was that kind of good news. It wasn't just arbitrary, hey, I have a good idea, good news. No, this was very important good news that had implications on a people. It was a political term. And, and the church in Philippi, this would not have been lost on them. I mean, Philippi, as, as Pastor Mike mentioned last week, was an incredibly Roman. And the reason was, was because in, in 42 AD, it was when a Roman civil war was settled, where... Uh, Mark Antony and Octavius and their army defeated Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and Cassius had assassinated Julius Caesar, as you may be familiar with in, from the uh, play from Shakespeare. They assassinated him, and this launched the civil war, and Mark Antony and Octavian 
led to this battle right in Philippi. 200,000 soldiers waged war right here. Many of those soldiers who were victorious settled in Philippi, so it became a proudly Roman city. They would have been very familiar with good news, gospel, a message coming from Caesar with implications on their city. Paul, in the midst of this Caesar worship, Roman adoration, he says, no. Your peace, your security, your work, your ministry isn't promoting King Caesar. It's promoting Jesus Christ. That Jesus and his work is the one that brings lasting peace, lasting shalom, true flourishing and joy in life. So what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus as Lord. The gospel is the good news that through the work and record of Jesus Christ, God is extending his kingdom into the world. And ultimately, Jesus will return one day as the ruler of the world and king to fully restore justice and peace and flourishing for all. This is the gospel, the good news of the story of God's redeeming and renewing work. So, in many church traditions, the gospel equals just being saved, personal salvation from sin. Is that a part of the work? Absolutely. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved and made right with God. But that's not the end of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of being made right with God and then extending that love and grace and mercy into the world. This is the gospel. We must know it. But also, we must prioritize it. And this leads us to ask, what are the false gospels? What are the gospels that can shape our lens and lead us not toward the gospel of Jesus, but toward another gospel? And I want to highlight two. One on the right and one on the left. One gospel is the gospel of American nationalism. The idea that how we interpret life and right or wrong is purely through the lens of white American values, American nationalistic impulses. And this, is, unfortunately, is embedded in, in much Christian thought today. And the gospel is about aligning ourselves with American conceptualism, and we even baptize it with terminology like America is a city on the hill, which Ronald Reagan ripped off this metaphor from Scripture. America is not the city on the hill. America has done good. It, there is a lot of good. I, I'm pro-America. This is my home. This is where I live. I want to see our country flourish, and I want to see our country be a blessing to the world. But we are not the city on the hill. That is the church. And it is not the same as America. And so we must be able to discern what are the views and values I have that are more shaped by American nationalism and those impulses. And how is that different than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We must unhinge this American nationalist impulse with the gospel. But also, on the left, there is a progressive individualism, this post-Christendom concept where we want the benefits of the kingdom of God. We want equality and justice and liberation and freedom. We want the benefits of the kingdom of prosperity without the king. And what we put in the center 
is self. The American nationalistic impulse is putting the nation at the center and the the progressive individualistic impulse puts the self at the center. And so it's all about self-expression, self-identity formation. And friends, this leads us into a rootedlessness in life. This leads to feeling the pressure to form and make and earn our own identity. And the gospel, it comes in, it's, the gospel is the good news of the only identity that is freely given. It doesn't matter your ethnic or racial or cultural background. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter what you've done or will do. The gospel is God's gracious invitation into his family. Not to earn it. It is freely given. An identity rooted in love and grace. And so which lens is shaping us? Which gospel is the foundation of our life? Let's be of the same mind. Let's know and prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ. At Scarlet City, this is our task. This is why we must always come around the gospel and have it shape how we enter into the world, the justice we're about, the mercy we're about, the love, how we look at politics, all of it. We must seek and fight and wrestle with how is the gospel at the center. I want to invite you to just consider what is the dominant lens that's shaping how you're viewing life. Are you putting yourself at the center? Are you putting American nationalism at the center? Are you open to putting Jesus at the center? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God of good news that you, through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, bring us into harmony with you and other people. May we, like Paul, believe that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And both of those are only possible through the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. It's in his name we pray.